0: Let us pray. God, we give you praise for the sunshine that is out this morning, for the reminder of who you are as Jesus the Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would take these offerings, small or large, and that you would use them for your coming kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, uh, sisters and brothers. It's good to be here with you this week. Uh, I was unable to be here with you last week, but thank you to those of you. I, I heard the happy birthday that you all uh, shouted out, uh, uh, and so I am fully appreciative of that. I had a great birthday and a uh, good time away with uh, my wife, Megan. And, but it's good to be back and uh, to be back with uh, you all, to be back with our children and uh, before we kind of dive in, I know that Scott's already said, or Scott, Don has already said something about this. Um, but certainly, we want you to know that we are kind of keeping our, our eyes and our ears open as far as the, the coronavirus. We also know, of course, there's lots of other flus, or at least a couple of other flus that are going on around us. And so Don already said something about the Purell that we uh, have placed out there. We realize that doesn't solve all of the world's issues, but uh, trying to think through that. But again, uh, feel very comfortable with um, not shaking someone's hand if you aren't comfortable with doing that. Um, Also, um, if uh, for communion, if today as we pass it out in trays, if you feel like, you know what, I just, I don't know, the person next to me is coughing, whatever it may be, um, feel free to not take it and and feel okay about that uh, and don't feel guilty about that. And if you aren't feeling well. Don't feel guilty about not coming. Uh, Pastor Scott himself is not here today because he doesn't feel all that well. Now, I also know that his wife Claire is in Florida, so there's a bit of me that's wondering if he's not catching up on all the Hallmark Channel shows he's been wanting to watch. But I, 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 I can neither confirm nor deny that. I'm just saying. So, uh, so, uh, but, 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 please feel free. And again, if if things. Um, kind of ratchet up as they may, then we will continue to communicate with you all about any steps that we feel like we need to take, and please reach out to us if you have any questions. All right, well, this week we are continuing our look at the Gospel of John, and so we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. This is um, a story that's probably familiar to you. It's the only miracle story, kind of from um, from the beginning of Jesus up until his resurrection, that is in all four Gospels. And so clearly this is a significant story. And so join me as we hear what John has to say. John says this, After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. And Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would speak to us through this story, a story again that most of us know and are familiar with, that perhaps this morning we either need to be reminded For the 100th time of what it has to say to us, or maybe even see for the first time something we had not noticed before. But we pray that your Spirit would bring those things up into our hearts and our minds. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So, John begins this passage by letting us know that he's really kind of garnering quite the crowd. There's a lot of people who are beginning to follow him, who are trying to find Jesus. But it's interesting that John wants us to be somewhat clear that a part of the reason, at least, if not a significant part of the reason, is because of the fact of the signs that he is performing or that he is doing for them. In other words, there's a question as to whether or not they're following him at this point. Because of who he is or simply because they want to see what other sign he's going to do or what he might do for them. Which is interesting because we see that at the beginning of the passage and of course at the end of our passage when Jesus has to hide himself because of what they want from him. And so this crowd has all gathered around, and before he even begins to teach, it seems, Jesus realizes there's going to be an issue, which is how are we going to feed all of these people, all of these 5,000 people? And so he says to his disciples, well, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? How can we feed all of these people? And he does it, John tells us, in order to test them. And there are some people who don't really like that. They think, well, Jesus shouldn't be testing his disciples. He shouldn't test us. But it's also been pointed out that any good teacher from time to time is going to be testing uh, his or her students, the disciples, to see, are you learning anything? I mean, by now, they have seen Jesus do some pretty remarkable things. And so Jesus sees here then an opportunity To say, are you going to focus on what you can do and your own scarcity? Or after having seen some of the things I've done, are you going to genuinely believe that I am God and put your trust in me? It's a fair question. And of course, it seems that they didn't really do that great of a job of answering, right? Philip begins with almost this kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of answer, right? Like, what are you talking about? It would take six months work, and even then it probably wouldn't even feed them, right? You you get a sense that he's kind of rolling his eyes a little bit and, and wondering, well, surely this can't be the Messiah, because no Messiah would ask a dumb question like this. Later, Andrew comes up to him, and Andrew says, well, There is this boy here who has five loaves and two fish, but surely that's not enough. And you just picture him looking around for this crowd of people. Now you could, I suppose, look at that and just focus on the second part of the the phrase and say, well, clearly he doesn't have nearly as much faith as he should. And perhaps... You're right. But I also give kudos to Andrew because here's the truth, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when you don't have any hope and you don't have any faith in something, it is impossible for you to see anything, even the smallest of things, and think that it might be an avenue for light or hope. Or faith. When you are a hopeless person, when you look around and all you see is darkness, it doesn't matter how bright something near you may be, you will not see it. And so I'm thinking about Andrew, I'm thinking, man, this guy, he's at least beginning to see something because even though he knows it's not that much, he at least points him out to Jesus. I, I was thinking it's a little bit like when I was growing up and I had this uh, math teacher in Um, My mother was a math teacher, and so um, math teachers have always frightened me because of that. And so, but I can remember like if, you know, your math teacher, she gives you this kind of really difficult, you know, question. And and she's looking at you, a difficult problem, and she's looking at you to answer it. And everyone's looking at you, and you're like, oh, I don't know. This is really complex. And you think there might be a chance you may know what the answer is, but you really don't want to say it because you know you probably don't know it. And so you kind of are like, 40? And you look to see if the teacher's like, yeah? And then you're like, two. And if he's like, that's it. And all your friends are rolling their eyes and you're like, oh, thank God, right? And I feel like this is a little bit like Philip. Like he's like, well, I don't know. I got these five loaves and two fish, but surely they're not enough. (laughs) And Jesus, well, he doesn't say yes, but because of the fact that he doesn't say no, it kind of means yes, because what does he do? He just says, all right, let's have everyone sit down. And so everyone sat down. For some reason, John wants us to know that they were comfortable. Uh, there, was, there was enough grass there for everyone. Isn't that kind of weird? I know, there, I'm sure there's a great theological insight into that, but I'm not going to make it today. And so, and so they, all, they all sit down, right? And it's this kind of beautiful scene. And then there's this kind of Eucharistic text, right, where he, he takes the five loaves and two fish. He blesses it, right, and then he distributes it. Now, here's something I hope that you saw, which is that, which is that he, he, he let them all have whatever they wanted, as much as they wanted. That's remarkable, right? I mean, I mean he wasn't like he was, a, he, you know, he was kind of, you know, he was sitting there and watching if someone took off a little piece of bread and maybe it was a little bit too big. And he was like, are you sure you need all of that? Look at this little kid over here. She is starving, right? There's none of that, right? It's just this, are you sure that's enough? You can have more. Are you sure that's enough? You know, I, I get this a lot when, when people come down for intinction and they take off a piece of bread and they take off way too much or what they think is way too much and like, and they never know what to do. Like, should I cut some of it off and put it back? And I know, don't, um, <laughs> especially not now but I love it. And I will just take it, right? Because it's a sign of the generosity of Jesus, right? And so there's just this beautiful sign. We've seen this again. We've seen it earlier in John. We'll see it again, but just this great generosity, right? Just take as much. And then how many, how much do you have left over 12 baskets full? It's overkill. What does that story remind you of? Wine, turning water into wine, right? Remember this? He, he, he could have just given them enough for the party, right? He could have had it so that, so that the very last drop of, of wine was fully sated, the very last person. And they looked around and were like, oh my goodness, it's the exact right amount. But he doesn't. Instead, he makes 150 gallons, which no party could have made its way through, right? Because they would have been done well before they got there. Some of you are like, well, I don't know. I've been to a good party. So here, right, he could have had it so that the very last morsel, the very last piece of fish that had been caught in someone's teeth, it's like, that's gross, I know. But, and right there, it's like, oh, that's perfect. And they looked around, there's none left. Yeah, no. Twelve baskets full. It is a generous God, an overabundant God. Don't look past that. This is incredible. So they have all this food, right? And so everyone's like, wow, this is amazing. And they say, some of them say, well, he must be a, he is the prophet, which of course is not really completely true. They don't quite get him, but then others want to make him into a king. And so Jesus quickly, he almost disappears, it seems, into the mountainside because he knew what they wanted. Now, I'm going to stay there for just a moment. It's a wee bit dangerous, but I'm going to do it anyways, because I want to point out just how quickly... They turn this incredible event that Jesus did into their own political desires to make him king. Right, here's what Gary Bird says. One of the things he says is this. The crowd wants to force Jesus to define his mission and work politically, but Jesus doesn't want to get caught up in their political ambitions. There's a sense, of course, that they think that if they just have the right king, the right politician, the right president, the right prime minister, whatever you want to call it, then all that ails them is going to be fine. And so they want to bring him, they want to forcibly take him. And what I love about this scene is that Jesus, he doesn't just say no. Nor does he say, you know what? That's interesting. Let me pray about this for a little while. He disappeared all together. See, and I have a sense that the reason why he did that is that he knew how strong their urgings were. He knew just how desperate they were in thinking that if they had just the right person, then everything, every problem they had was going to be solved, that this, the right king, was going to solve everything. And Jesus knew that that was not why he was there. There's one other thing that Gary Bird says that I want us to think about right here. When Jesus is taken by force to serve as a pawn in our religiously sanctioned political program, we are no different than the crowds in Galilee. Now, I think this is important to keep in mind here in the year 2020, because I think it's this great reminder of how quickly, I love it when I start talking about this stuff and nobody looks at me, how quickly We are, how how, how eager we oftentimes are to use Jesus for our own political ends. Now, we would never say this is what we are doing, but so often it actually is. And how interesting it is that all of us think we know for sure exactly what Jesus would do if he was king or president or prime minister. there's a bit of me that wishes that Jesus would have allowed them to have taken him. Because I wonder how long it would have taken. I would have said within 24 hours that he would have made a decision. That they would have been like, "Mm mm-mm, he must not be the Messiah. Because I know what the Messiah would do. It's in the same way that I have a sneaking suspicion that if Jesus, if we made Jesus president, pretty soon, within 24 hours or so, most of us would be like, well, that must not be Jesus, because I know what Jesus would do. So let me tell you what Jesus would do, right? What I want to warn us and challenge us about is this. There's a good chance you don't know nearly as much as you think you do about exactly what Jesus would do. Now that doesn't mean, please hear me, there's always this tension. We're such a polled people that we think either it's all or nothing. That doesn't mean that scripture and that what we understand Jesus, what what he would do, that that we don't allow that to influence our own sense of who should be the president, of, uh, of, of policies, of things like that. I get that. I'm totally fine with that. But I do want to warn all of us that we must do this with an abundant amount of humility. Knowing that none of us have got Jesus completely figured out, because if you do, it means you're God. Remember the way of Jesus, the way that Jesus chose to change the world was by fleeing when they wanted to make him king of Rome or emperor of Rome or whatever else, king of Jerusalem, whatever else it was. And he chose the way of sacrifice and of suffering and of servanthood. And while certainly governments can do remarkably good things, and we should pray for them, please hear me, we should be involved, all of those things, more often than not, the way of Jesus was the way of actual Jesus. Right? We make it complicated because it's a lot easier to vote or give money or yell about something than it is simply to serve and suffer alongside of others. But this is, Is the way of Jesus. And you see it, I think, one more time in this story. And I want to point out, in a way that we oftentimes overlook, and that is the boy. How often, when you think about this story, have you thought of the boy? But usually when it comes to this story, what we think about is we think about the, the five loaves and the two fish. Hey, that's wonderful. Or we think about the 5,000 people. That's wonderful. We think, of course, about the miracle and the 12 baskets full. All those things are good and right. But how often do you think about this boy, this random, anonymous, we don't know his name, this boy? What was he thinking in the middle of all of this? What would you have been thinking? There you are, early that morning, and you're thinking, all right, I'm about to go hear this Jesus guy. Now, he's going to be out a little ways, as I recall. Not a lot of grocery stores out there. Not a lot of places for food. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to get these five loaves and two fish. And I'm going to take them with me. And so he does. And he gets there, and then he's surrounded by all of these numbskulls who forgot their food. <laughs> and, and think about, what are you, what are you thinking? When well, they're like, all right guys, does anybody have any food? What would you do? No food here. I mean, why in the world should he give up his food? Because nobody else seemed to remember that they might need to eat that day. I mean, they should just try some intermittent fasting, right? You'll be fine without lunch, you should be good. It's just a fascinating scene, right? Or even just the fact that he could be embarrassed. I mean, gee whiz, this is all I have, there's no way, right? I mean, he sees the crowds as well. I know how difficult it is even for my own children, right? With one of them who who can't imagine, why do I have to share my food with my one sister or two sisters or three sisters? And now you're asking this boy to share what he has with 5,000? He's gotta be thinking, I'm not gonna get even a crumb. And I'm the one who thought to bring my food. Have you ever thought about the boy? No, why? Because we think about, oh, this incredible miracle. That's amazing. Or we focus on these adult disciples. Oh, they should have more faith. This is just really sad. Or we think about all of these different things. And none of us think about the boy who willingly offered up everything that he had brought, even when he could not have imagined that Jesus would be able to use it to do anything. And because that one random anonymous boy who thought things through and packed them that day or decided to take it when his mom or dad packed it, whatever it may be, and went and then said, it's not much, but here you go, everything changed. It's eerily similar to what we talked about back in January 19th, I think it was, if you were here, when we talked about the fact that when Jesus started, you know, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's this little, you know, podunk town, and the disciples, they weren't much. They were just fishermen. There was nothing very impressive about them. And we talked about the fact that you have to go back to the beginnings of things and realize that Every good work of the Lord that the Lord loves to work through the very small and seemingly insignificant things that we offer. Remember, we talked about Great Banquet. Great Banquet, oh, thousands of people who have come through. Ah, oh, wonderful. You know, they started so many other different Great Banquets all the way down to Brazil and, and people's lives have been changed. They've met Jesus for the first time. They've had rec- uh, um, relationships that have been reconciled. It's incredible. And we think, oh yeah, I mean, it changed the scope and who ZPC is over the last 20 some years. And we think, oh, that's wonderful. It's great. And we never, rarely go back to think about the very first Sunday when Randy and Betty Sue LaFoon showed up and somebody welcomed them. Maybe it was just a hi. Or the southern accent that they liked and they liked that southern accent and made them feel at home. Or someone asked them a question about themselves. Something very, very small, not much more than five loaves or two little fish, and because of that, it changed everything right I was thinking about the food pantry this week because of course we 're talking about feeding, so it made me think about the food pantry, talking to Nancy Thompson and one of the leaders and you know, about 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 the, so many people. I mean, 100 people a hundred people a week that come through here. That doesn't even include, of course, their families. And eight to ten thousand pounds of food that that is brought in every month. And probably 75 or so volunteers monthly, which doesn't include the different food drives that the post office does or the, the football team does. All those things. It's just remarkable ministry. It does incredible things. It feeds the hungry. And if this, you know, let's not over spiritualize this if there's one thing that's really important to see of course about this is that Jesus wants us to make sure that the hungry are fed but amidst all of that right if you go back to the late 80s do you know what you find you find a few women in one of these little random preschool rooms off here off this wing and, and and they're gathering some food in a grocery bag for two or three people a week that was it Two or three people a week, and these would just be people who would come in to the church office during the week. Now imagine if you were those, and, and I don't think any of them are even here anymore. I don't, I don't know, I don't mean, uh, maybe they're dead, I don't think so, but, I, but but they're not here. But imagine if you transported them, and all of a sudden on a Thursday evening or a Friday afternoon, they see all the work going on. Can you imagine? They'd be like, what? Where did that start from? Like, it started with you. And this little office doing this small Thing. But so frequently we focus on the big, on the exciting, on the splashy, on this amazing thing, oh, God must be there, rather than focusing on the small thing like this boy who says, it's not much, but this is what I have. And I want to be real clear as well that while this is about physical, it is also about so much more than that. I'm not sure how often you think about what you do physically for somebody, how it reaches beyond into their emotion and into their spiritual even. Think about, I was talking to Nancy, and unsolicited, I mean it. She said to me, she said, well, you know, and this is a little bit like what Scott Shelton was talking about last week. When they come in, it's more than just physical food. This is, as some people say, this is their church. And when they come in, This may be one of the only times all week that someone listens to them and that they have a time for prayer, but there's also times when people just ask, hey, can you pray for me? And this is one of the things that Nancy says. And then in the weeks to come, guess what? Somebody asks them about the thing that they had been praying about. At times, she says, it is the only time that they will ever even get an embrace. You see, when Jesus fed them physically, why did they want to make him king? Because it made him feel like all of a sudden they were loved and cared for, like they had not been forgotten, like they weren't just a pawn in the Roman Empire, like they actually meant enough that we're going to do this miracle for you. And I'm reminded of the story I told you all before, so I won't go into great detail of my uncle up in Michigan and How when I was a kid, every other Christmas, we would drive up there from Florida, but before that, he would send a check for $500 for their single, for his single mother, sister, or his sister, who was a single mother of two kids, and that's me, and my sister, and, and how the $500 was sent, why? In order to pay for gas? to get up to Michigan and back in order to pay for food, to get up to Michigan and back. And each way, a hotel stop. But now think about it. As soon as you put in $40 for gas, you only had $460 left. As soon as you paid 10, 15 bucks at, at McDonald's, you only had $445 left. As soon as you stayed at a hotel that next morning, you only had $345 left. Then you're getting another meal. And before you know it, guess what? You're out of money by the time you get back. The money, the physical money that my uncle gave my mother was completely gone. But do you know what has never been forgotten? His generosity and the way in which when he gave that money, it made me know that I had not been forgotten, that we were still loved. And so 30 years later, more than 30 years later, I have never forgotten that. So that whenever it was a year ago when I told you this story, I got to tell a few hundred people, and now I'm telling you. And if you forgot, great, if you didn't hear it, here's the thing. I want you to go out and tell that story or tell your own story because these are the kinds of things that have impacts not just for as long as the physical food stays there, but for eternity. And for this story, it started with this boy. Who said, I don't have much, but I'm going to give what I have. We know that one of the aims of the gospel of John is this. To help us to understand who God is. But one of the other aims, it seems to me, as we continue into this gospel, is that John also wants us to know how God so often works. And that is through the small things that we offer. Up, the things that we cannot even imagine, how God could use a note of encouragement, a small time of prayer, a, a, a way of just telling of listening to somebody for five minutes, offering a piece of food, five loaves, two fish, whatever it may be. We never know, and far too often we do nothing. Because we look out at the crowd and we think the hunger is far too great. There is no possible way that we could ever feed all of these people, and it causes us to do nothing. This week I have felt it. Maybe you felt it as well. I don't know. I have felt overwhelmed at times. With the weight, it seems, and I know, I'm sure that every year maybe it's like this, but the weight of the world, the political struggles that we are in, obviously, the coronavirus and just simply the fear and anxiety that that cultivates. The amount of loneliness, the depression, the suicide that that so easily it seems to, to just wash over us. The shooting, all of these things. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just want to roll over in bed. Turn up my white noise machine. Tell the kids to get back up in bed and just sleep. it is easy to see the need and the brokenness and the sin and the struggle all around us and to simply give up. And in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit plops this story in our laps. The story of this little random anonymous boy who chose to look at Jesus and what he could offer, as small as it may be, over the massive hunger and need that he saw all around him. And because of that, everything changed. I think in this time and place, we need to be aware that it takes an actual decision That we have to make almost daily of whether you are going to choose cynicism and scarcity or whether you will choose the way of hope and abundance. Make no mistake, it takes the faith of a child to choose the way of abundance and hope, but it is the way of Jesus. And it is the way that our world needs us desperately to take in this time. So may God give us this faith of this boy, and may he work through it in dramatic ways. Let us pray. God, we never know exactly how it is that you are going to work through what we have But we do know with great frequency we decide to give nothing because we think we have nothing. And so I pray that in this season of Lent that as we remember you and what you have done for us, that it would encourage our faith to know that what we offer, as small as it may be, can be used by you to feed the hungry, to heal the brokenhearted, to reconcile the broken. We pray all these things in your name. Amen and amen. Well, it seems wholly appropriate on a day when Jesus took and blessed and broke and gave this five loaves and two fish for us to be reminded of that by our taking of communion. We are reminded that Jesus takes what may seem so small and insignificant and changes our lives and changes the world. And so I invite you to this table this morning to remember what Jesus has done To remember that access to this table is not a right conferred upon the worthy, but is a privilege given to the undeserving. That even those this morning who may doubt, even those who may wonder, what do I have to offer? I seem to have nothing to offer. That you can take of this bread and you can take of this cup. And you can be assured of God's grace and love in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall upon this bread and this cup. May they lift us up to you that we might be reminded of what you have done for us in your brokenness and in the ways, Lord, in which we can join you in what it is that you are doing on this earth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his Arrest took bread and after blood